Our second reading comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which sorry, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. singing i was singing loud and proud i thought everybody was hearing me i was doing harmonies like y'all over there um molly or preached this morning as we've mentioned were you nervous when you got up there yeah. you were i wonder i wonder about you all i mean our the, the elementary children in this church and then the youth they all get up there and they're, they're so poised it's an amazing thing i'm terrified for the whole day before i have to even do a prayer of confession um, I want to talk briefly about, and I hope I'll get this right, a psychologist named Jean Piaget. For those who have studied education, are we right? Okay, Jean Piaget, French psychologist who talked about um, the stages of cognitive development. And uh, I, I don't know much about it. Some of you do. But the idea there is that as uh, a child moves from infancy on, really the whole way to adulthood, there are stages of cognitive, of thinking, development, uh, stages that allow the child to be able to start to discern uh, the world around that child, to discern the world from that child, um, and to be able to, to, to start to make inferences, uh, to be able to start to figure things out symbolically. And there are things that sometimes I think I haven't really developed past. But uh, these stages, I think, are an important thing. Uh, there's one called the concrete operational stage, which is supposed to be from ages 7 to 11. And in this stage, one is to develop the ability to see things from another's perspective, to be able to know that there is uh, someone else over there that may see things differently than uh, the one individual sees things. It's a movement away from egocentrism, not, not, not using that in a negative sense, but just the idea of the self being all that there is. This idea of development is something that leads me to think about a wonderful television show that was on Fox from 2003 to 2006 called Arrested Development. And as a matter of fact, uh, there's going to be a new season of this show on Netflix coming in May, and they're starting to do a movie for any that are fans of this it was uh, kind of an obscure, uh, struggling little comedy 
with lots of detailed uh, com comedy bits, things that would be referenced in one show and picked up way down the line and uh, required a lot of attention to catch all of these things. And at the beginning of this, uh, it's a story of a family. In the beginning, there is some narrations, the beginning of this show, Arrested Development, in which the narrator says, it's a story of a family who lost everything and the one son who had no choice but to keep them all together. And so the one son, played by the actor Jason Bateman, his character was named Michael Bluth, would always have to come in. He would always have to provide direction. He would always have to uh, pick up the pieces of the mistakes that all of those around him had done. And the characters that were a part of his family, his, his two brothers, his sister, his mom and dad, um, were all very egocentric. Hadn't moved beyond that 7 to 11-year-old phase in their lives. And they did things that were very much oriented toward themselves, and Michael would come in and pick up the pieces. They were childish. One of the characters named um, Job, it's spelled G-O-B, but his character was named uh, Job. G-O-B stored, uh, stood for George Oscar Bluth, in case you, there's trivia for you. Um, and this character, after uh, doing terrible things, one after another throughout the series' existence, would say, I've made a huge mistake. And again, Michael would come in. Each of these characters was arrested in their development. And it's kind of like the disciples who are being called to follow Jesus. The books of Luke and Acts are books about, essentially, the disciples. Disciple is a word that means to follow. Apostle is a word that basically means to be sent. And the books of Luke and Acts are written uh, together, meant to be read as these disciples are following Jesus toward Jerusalem and acts as these disciples are then moving out into the world, beginning to spread the message uh, to those beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And continually, these disciples, whether it's here in the Gospel of Luke or in the book of Acts, they're coming up short. And yet, the church continues to be built upon them, and yet the Spirit comes upon them and gives them responsibility, and yet the ones who keep making mistakes end up being the ones who begin what is now what we are a part of in our Christian faith. So we, I think, can join in anytime we see the disciples and see interactions between the disciples and Jesus, in particular Peter. Peter always gets thrown in there as the prime example. We can be represented by them. We can listen to what happens, how they miss the point, how they don't always understand what Jesus is saying how they want to claim Jesus in certain ways, how they want to put him in boxes that are comfortable to them, and we can be represented by that, by that confusion. And we may say at the end of the story that Jesus is the one son who had no choice but to keep them all together. The uh, transfiguration, the, Alan mentioned that word. There was a preacher here at this church. She was a, a pastor for um, pastoral care named Trisha Centerfit, and there was something called Stephen Minister Training, where people who were meant to go out into the congregation and help to minister to those who might need it, they were to be, um, they were to be, uh, what was, not the word blessed, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Commission. commission, there we go. So they would be commissioned, and Trisha always had to preach on that Sunday, and it was always Transfiguration Sunday. And so she always had to figure out, well, how am I going to talk about Transfiguration? What does it even mean? And it's a word that's not even in the text. It's a word that's not even in there. We get a word that's changed about Jesus' face being changed, and so there's our connection to this transfigured. 
But what we get in that change is this idea of, of Jesus' face becoming bright, his clothes becoming dazzling white. And that is the thing that, that we focus on. That is the thing that is so un- unique about this passage, um, so connected to other passage, even though it's unique, and, uh, and allows us to enter in and to ask some questions about it. Um, the appearance of things that are dazzling white, the appearance of brightness, is something that happens throughout the Bible, often when it's God's presence. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, at the end of, end of Luke, uh, when the women go into the tomb, the empty tomb, um, they see two figures dressed in dazzling white. So there is this idea that there's this presence of God like angels that are there when something is bright. The word that's used in our text twice to talk about this brightness is a word that is glory. And so there's a connection between, between this word glory, which we heard a lot in some of the hymns, even in the, a little bit in the Psalm 99 text. That word glory is used to describe this, this change in a way, this presence of God that's present in a brightness and in the clothes that are dazzling and shining. And that word glory in the Old Testament uh, was often used in times when people were trying to, or when people had experienced the presence of God, talking about the glory being there. And uh, the word glory was also used simply to talk about the presence. Uh, There was a time um, where the Ark of the Covenant was believed to be the throne of God. God was supposed to be seated on the Ark. And so as Israel was preparing to become a nation, as uh, they were preparing to choose a king, the ark was stolen, and the passage actually says the glory had departed. In other words, God was gone because the ark was gone. That's where God sits. So it's a powerful uh, term to talk about the presence of God using that word glory. And in the New Testament, we might connect it to the word brightness. Augustine, who was one of these, uh, one of these uh, writers I'm supposed to have read, um, uh, he talked about that word being, being defined as brightness. Um, I was in a, a Bible class, and someone mentioned that they had just picked up one of Augustine's books and were reading through it, which I was pretty impressed with. Um, I mean, I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. Is it <laughs> Augustine, Augustine? All right. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about this uh, experience of glory. By the way, there was a satellite that NASA tried to send up a couple of years ago, and its, its title was Glory. And its purpose was to measure the radiation of the sun. That was one of its purposes, to measure the radiation of the sun, which is you know, kind of a neat, you know, dazzling white. The, the, um, but it never made it up there. It, it, uh, it crashed on launch. So glory failed. Um, the experience of glory, though, is something I hope that we can relate to. It's something that uh, we can think about in terms of like a mystical experience or a mysterious experience. It's certainly what happens when the people in the Bible experience it. It's something that we want to capture. It's something that is different from the everyday. And we know whenever there is something that is different than the everyday, it's something we want to hold on to. You know, some of those times we may call those times of grace. We may call those times of joy. Uh, the writer C.S. Lewis called it that. Where as soon as you start to feel it, as soon as you start to have it, all of a sudden it slips away. And you want to capture those moments of glory or of grace. Peter, in our story, going back to this disciple of arrested development, Peter wanted to capture the glory in a tent or a booth. You know, he says, let us build places for you and Elijah and Moses. Let us build little tents. Let us build little booths 
And, and it's kind of a reference to when the people were in the wilderness, the, the, uh, the places that they would stay, and there's actually a festival of booths to commemorate that. Peter is trying to wrap this moment of glory up by building something which it can live in, something that he can see, something that he can be a part of. And our passage says at the end of what he did, or what he, uh, what he said should happen, he said, not knowing what he had said. He didn't get it. There was something wrong with what he had done. Uh, memorializing things and commemorating things are what we are good at as people, and rightly so, because what it helps us to do is to look back on our past. It helps us to honor things that have gone before us helps us to uh, hopefully learn from those things and have them impact our lives. But sometimes uh, honoring and memorializing keeps us. If we aren't able to let it propel us into something else, keeps us in one particular place, holds us in a strange place. Speaking of strange, uh, I couldn't help think of this today. There's a show, I think it's called My Strange Addiction, and there was a woman who was eating her husband's ashes as a way of holding on to him, not being able to let go. Arrested development. There are special occasions, moments of glory, and it is difficult to move on from them. But they hinder who we are to be. I found this uh, lunchbox I have that has uh, superheroes on it. They're now what would be considered the Avengers, which came out this summer movie about superheroes. And it's uh, within this box, what I found was 1977 original Star Wars trading cards, which now, these both, both are owned by Disney, Star Wars and Marvel's Avengers, so it's all corporate now. Um, but what was exciting to me was it just took me back to all of these memories of this particular moment and the fact that I still have it. And I wanted, to, I wanted to have the feelings of that moment. I wanted to hold on to those things. I wanted to be a kid. And... So I put it in my room where I have all my other lunch boxes and baseball cards and everything else. <laughs> Glory is fleeting, though. It's uh, something we can't always hold on to, and it's something we can't always figure out, those special times. Um, going back to an obvious reference here, um, Bruce Springsteen in his song, Glory Days, talks about, I hope when I get old, I don't sit around thinking about it, but I probably will trying to recapture a little of the glory. Time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory days. The idea of something, you know, he talks about a baseball player in high school, you know, wanting to go back to those days and talk about them. And they do have meaning, but what is the purpose of them for today is one living in that moment, like Peter was trying to do on that mountaintop, hold on to something, or is one using it to propel them into the life that they're being called to. In our confession, you heard that language about what is the call of God, the love of God, the grace of God. What is its reason in our lives? It's to move us out into the world. It's to go into the places to which we're, uh, we're being called. One of the later, later stages of Piaget, and I, I think this is right, is formal operational. Does that sound right? This is the ability to see possible outcomes and consequences of actions. The ability to see possible outcomes. It's a transformation of us to be able to see that when we do something, something is going to happen. So one can start to prepare for things and not just do them on an immediate type of basis. 
Jesus takes the people up onto the mountain. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain. And one might say that there is this idea of being able to show them the possibilities that exist. Uh, within this story, what do we get? We get a description of God, we get a description by a voice of who Jesus is. This is my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. So what it does is it allows the reader and allows the disciples to look back to Jesus' baptism when similar words were said. We also get a moment where it says that Jesus was going to soon depart. And what that does is it allows us to see forward to the time of Jesus' death, resurrection, and even ascension uh, into heaven, which is a big part of Luke and the book of Acts. So what, what, we, what we have is we have the ability to look back and to look forward the ability for that to impact one's life. And it's all within this one story, like standing on the mountaintop, seeing the roads that come and go. There's a wholeness to it. But again, the disciples don't completely get that. And it even becomes a little bit more damning if we look at the story, because in the chapters that come right before uh, our passage today, what we get are Jesus talking to the disciples telling them what they're to do in their lives. And what they're to do is to go into the world, and what they are to do is to cast out demons, what they are to do is to uh, uh, release captives, and they are to proclaim God's word. So Jesus has given them instructions. Jesus has told them what to do. And yet Peter's trying to hold on to the mountaintop. Jesus is trying to hold on to that glorious moment. Right before this also, Jesus says to them, here's what you must do. If you want to follow me, take up your cross daily and follow me. He's calling for something enormous. He's just said this to them, and they go on the mountaintop. All right, we need to build something. We need to hold God in this place. We need to keep glory here. And right after this passage, we have similar things. There, uh, Jesus encounters a, uh, uh, someone who is possessed, and the father of the person who's possessed comes up to him and says, I asked your disciples to do it, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus actually gets mad at the whole situation, says, this faithless generation. When are you going to learn? Similar to Michael in Arrested Development, there's a, a scene where he says, that's it, I'm out of here. And they said, oh, you've said that before. And they go through a montage of throughout his life saying, that's it, I'm out of here. But Jesus stays with them, even though he's upset. And even after that, after our passage, after the disciples have failed, we also get another example of them where they're saying, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom to come? Here they are, having been told how to be the greatest. Take up your cross and follow me. Now as they experience this glory on the mountaintop, they try to hold on to it, and they won't move ahead. The passage also says that they were asleep it says they were drowsy. It says they were, it says they were tired. And our passage actually, actually doesn't have them waking up, but some translation says that they were waking up, that they were actually asleep at this moment. You can see them waking up and saying, I've made a huge mistake, wondering what to do. If only they could see ahead. Even when the days come when Jesus prays in Gethsemane, they will fall asleep again. Their eyes won't be open. They won't be ready. Glory uh, sounds good. It's a good word. And it's something that I think we would all aspire to be a part of, whether it's somehow through other people that we're associated with or through events we're associated with or something we do that we get attention for. Glory, something that is bright, 
not in this dazzling white that Jesus has, but glory, something that holds us up as different in the world. But the glory that Jesus is showing in this moment of transfiguration that God reveals to them is a glory that lives itself on the road, picking up one's cross and following Jesus. It's a glory that's not just about cloud moments on the mountaintop, but is about being in the midst of the people. Ages 2 to 7 are good years. People take care of you. I like that. <laughs> would like to go back to that. I was 7 when I got that lunchbox, I think. Um, I'm sure my mom put milk and Doritos in there. Um, 2 to 7 are good years, but we need to unarrest our development as people of faith. We need to not just be stuck in the idea of claiming Jesus for us. He's not an extension of us. We are an extension of him in this world. He wants us to see his perspective, a perspective where he says to the disciples three times in Luke, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be resurrected. No, no, no. Let's keep you in this box. Jesus wants us to see the perspective of being hilltop-born but valley-bound, to see the possibilities of cross-bearing and love-sharing. The glory of God is in the ministry of Jesus, a life to which the disciples, a life to which each one of us is called. Luke acts our lives as people of faith is the story of a family who lost everything. The one son who had no choice but to keep us all together. Amen.